Hello, and welcome to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts. And on this episode, you'll first be hearing a conversation between Reverend Richard Turnbull from the Center for Enterprise Markets and Ethics and Reverend Ben Johnson, senior editor here at Acton. They'll be talking about the church and the free market. What role should the church take in the market and how has this played out in history? After that, I'll be speaking with Dan Huger, a research associate also here at Acton, about the life and work of Lord Acton, the Acton Institute's namesake. Looking back, I recently realized that we've never even covered who Lord Acton is on this podcast and thought that now is as good a time as ever. Lastly, as we head into the new year, I want to let you know that I will be taking a short break from the podcast for some holiday vacation. So next week, we'll be running a Redux episode that I think you will really like. And the week after that, on the 26th, we will not have an episode. But of course, we'll be returning on January 2nd and continue to bring you new episodes every Wednesday after that. Make sure you never miss another episode and subscribe on Apple Podcasts today or any of your favorite podcast directories. Christianity and freedom go hand in hand, but you might not know that from some of the pronouncements that are made by some Christian leaders. The situation is not always good in the United States, but in some ways it may be even worse in the United Kingdom. Here to analyze that is Reverend Richard Turnbull of the Center for Enterprise, Markets, and Ethics. You can see their website, thecemeorg He's also ordained in the Church of England. He's going to be discussing the state of the church and the free market in the U.K., Reverend Turnbull, uh, the Archbishop Justin Welby has uh, given speeches that have gained uh, coverage across the transatlantic sphere, excoriating corporations for their practices in lowering their tax bill, in the wages that they pay. And he also wrote a report on economic justice, uh, which had a very left-wing economic agenda. To begin with, though, for our American listeners so they understand, what is the role of the Anglican Church? Yes, thank you very much. And uh, I'm delighted to be able to uh, share some of these uh, thoughts with your listeners. And in order to understand why it is that almost every pronouncement from a church leader, a Christian leader in the United Kingdom, seems to default to a not just to a left-wing position, but to an almost an unthinking assumption uh, that the state is the answer to every question, that higher taxation is the answer to every problem. Uh, And I think it's important for us just to begin to think a little bit about why that is. Uh, And in order to do that, uh, let me just take a minute or two to explain a little bit about the state of uh, religion in the United Kingdom, because it will help us uh, understand some of the things that are going on. Uh, There is one very big dominant church in the uh, United Kingdom, which is the Church of England. Uh, The interesting thing about the Church of England is is that it is not monolithic. Uh, Within its uh, boundaries, it encompasses uh, evangelicals, uh, Catholic, uh, more liberal, uh, quite a wide variety of uh, theological uh, beliefs, never mind uh, economic beliefs, But the important thing is that this church dominates the land in terms of the Christian scene. And if I may put it this way, for every Baptist in the United Kingdom, there are 12 members of the Church of England. My guess is in the United States, it's more than the opposite of that. For every Anglican, there's probably a 1,000 Baptists. So the situation is uh, quite different. And then you have 
this added complexity, there's the Roman Catholic Church as well, the Roman Catholic Church is present and not insignificant, but not one of the major players in the, uh, in, in the public uh, domain, but, but not insignificant. Uh, the real complexity comes from the relationship of the church and the state. And of course, uh, listeners to uh, this broadcast from the United States will know that it's kind of inborn in, in, in American thinking to separate uh, the, the church and the state. Uh, it's slightly more complicated in the uh, United Kingdom in that the church has certain responsibilities given to it uh, by the state. So, for example... As a uh, priest or minister of the Church of England, if somebody uh, comes to me and asks to be married, I cannot refuse them, provided they are entitled in law uh, to be married. Uh, in addition to that, some of the bishops sit in uh, one of the Houses of Parliament. We have two Houses of Parliament, the House of Commons, which is rather like the House of Representatives, and the House of Lords, which, although it's not the same as the Senate, is the, the second, the upper, the upper House of Parliament. 26 bishops sit in the House of Lords. Now, what that leads to is this. In theory, the idea is that they should be a Christian presence in that place. And in theory, it is the idea also that they should bring their Christian mind to bear upon uh, the establishment, the government of the day, and uh, so on and so forth. The complexity arises in that all too often uh, the bishops in those positions, the church leaders, uh, become more interested in the politics than in the spiritual welfare of the people they are in charge of. And in reality, it is that sort of insight where uh, they begin to think that they have more to say in the political realm and the economic realm, even though they may not be qualified at all to comment, uh, that begins this process that leads to this sort of default position of opposition to the, to the market economy. So perhaps its role as an established church has led to a bit of a blending of these two roles and the fact that they have uh, literally a pulpit in one case uh, gives them uh, the belief that they have a bully pulpit from which they can speak without necessarily knowing the underlying issues. Uh, precisely. Uh, and uh, one of the many interesting things is that that is not necessarily representative of the congregations uh, within the church, where there will be many people who work in the economic sector and the, the economy and work in business, uh, work in finance, work in retail and so on, who feel increasingly uneasy at uh, really quite ill-informed comment uh, from uh, church leaders. And I suppose trying to, trying to dig underneath and ask the question, well, why is it then? that these church leaders default these left-wing socialist positions. You also have to recognise the increase in the role of the state uh, that we have seen in the United Kingdom over the last hundred years or more. Now, what did the church have to say during the time that the state was increasing its power and the church seemingly was receding to the background? Yes, so uh, what, what happened was this. So as the power of the state began to increase, the state took over education, the state took over health and welfare. And, you know, you can have a political debate about where the right boundaries fall on those things. But those were areas where previously the church exerted significant influence. And so what happened was the church surrendered education, welfare, health to the state. 
And so this concept uh, then uh, began to develop that, well, if the state is the answer to those things, the state may also be the answer to all other matters of economic policy and economic insight. And so if you are a church leader where you've already surrendered that vision about the role of the church to the state and you're asked or you're thinking of commenting on an economic policy, on taxation, on government spending, uh, you you can see how they would then begin to default to assuming higher taxation, more government spending is the answer to all of those other problems uh, as well. And in particular in the area of taxation, uh, our church leaders seem to have a complete inability to understand that raising the rate of tax uh, 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 squashes enterprise, uh, squashes innovation, uh, puts downward pressure on creativity, and may even not generate the amount of tax revenue you want anyway. In his uh, recent speech, uh, Archbishop Justin Welby used a term that I believe had its origin more or less in the UK, or certainly got a great deal of popular support, which was Christian socialism. Uh, the Christian socialist movement, of course, being uh, largely launched uh, within uh, the boundaries of Great Britain. Is that still uh, a very popular movement within uh, the Church of England? Um, it would be very popular among the clergy. It would not be at all popular among the congregants. And uh, the clergy tend to default to this same position because that is the way in which they are formed and shaped and trained. And I might just reflect a moment or two on the origins of uh, Christian socialism. It really came from a group in the 19th century led by a man called uh, F.D. Morris, um, and he was a professor of theology. And um, maybe it's a little unfair to think of him as a socialist in every respect when looking at it in contemporary terms, but he founded this movement with others where the whole emphasis was uh, to be collaboration and cooperation rather than competition. But you can see how that would begin then in the economic sphere uh, to lead to an increased role for government, an increased role for the state. And that's what happened over the next 100 years, that the state uh, grew massively. Uh, the church outsourced its own responsibilities to the state. Um, and that then led uh, to these sort of economic assumptions that the market, instead of seeing the market as part of God's provision for the well-being of society, uh, the church leaders began to see the market as simply a problem and a problem to be solved, and a problem to be solved by, guess who? The government. And at the same time this was happening, what happened to the influence that the church had in British society? Yes, the influence of the church in British society has declined, is declining, and is continuing to decline. Now, I don't welcome that. Uh, I, I hope and I pray that God will bring about a revival of uh, 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 influence of the church. Uh, but the reality is that on a Sunday in the United Kingdom, you might find perhaps 3% of the population in church, and uh, it is increasingly the case uh, that the influence that the church has is a cultural nominalism rather than a spiritual insight. And so, for example, when the queen is crowned, the archbishop places the crown on the head. When a member of the royal family dies, it will be a bishop who conducts the funeral and, and leads the country in mourning. That's um, all well and good. Or, or, for example, the royal wedding. 
of the royal wedding, absolutely. Now, that's all well and good, but then when the government of the day announces that uh, it is going to place any form of restriction, for example, upon welfare recipients, the church leaders also then think it's their time and place to chime in and say that they think that's not a good idea, they think that's going to sort of be damaging to people. So you can see how they become captured by the political realm. They become captured by this idea that they have something to say. And if I wouldn't wish to denigrate or to be rude, but I think increasingly, certainly in the economic sphere, the bishops really have nothing to say. And yet they say it uh, so frequently, don't they? Indeed. And uh, it seems as though it's paid off in the sense of, uh, for example, Archbishop Justin Welby criticized Amazon for the wages that it paid, and then the next thing you know, Amazon announced that it was going to raise its rates to precisely the level that he mentioned. So it seems as though uh, the more that you uh, reward that sort of thing, the more of it you may get. Yes, the Amazon case is a very interesting uh, one more broadly. Um, Amazon's been a criticised by the church leaders in the United Kingdom on two fronts. Uh, one, as you described yourself there, uh, the issue of uh, paying wages. Uh, generally speaking, I believe in a, a high-wage economy, and I think that all companies should pay proper, decent and responsible uh, wages. But you also have to have entry-level jobs. And if you don't have entry-level jobs, you will never have the progression through those entry-level jobs. And actually, part of economic freedom is choosing whether or not to work for Amazon or not. Uh, and so there are implications of that. But the other area where Amazon has been attacked by church leaders is over uh, its tax policies. And the argument goes that the way in which Amazon organises its business, it means it doesn't pay corporation tax, corporate tax, uh, in the United Kingdom. And the church leaders uh, campaign on this and they chime in on this, but they completely fail to understand that even from the point of view of raising tax, the question you have to ask is not how much corporate tax do they pay, but how much total tax is paid. And so, whereas Amazon may not pay large amounts of corporation tax, which is not a particularly significant tax in the United Kingdom, they pay tax on payroll, they pay VAT on all of their purchases and all of their supplies, they collect VAT and payroll taxes on the part of the government and hand it over to the state. So maybe the Archbishop should have said to Amazon, thank you very much for all of the assistance you're giving to our government and our nation. But of course, that's not what they say. Well, that's a dark picture to say the least. What is your organization, the Center for Enterprise Markets and Ethics, doing to try and change the intellectual culture? Yes, and that is what we're trying to do. We're trying to change the intellectual culture. And we're trying to do that in two ways, I think, in this regard. And the firstly is, there's no one really in the United Kingdom making the case for the free market as part of God's provision for humanity. And so that's the big picture. We're trying to argue the case that the market economy, an enterprise economy, innovation, creativity, the creation of wealth is not the sum total, but part of God's provision uh, for his people. And the second thing we're trying to do is I come across in my everyday life and ministry a lot of business people feeling very alienated from the church, Christian people feeling very alienated from the church. And when you talk to them, you realise that if you go to church on a Sunday and you hear the priest or the minister or whoever it may be simply preaching about how nasty the bankers are or how uh, nasty and aggressive people who own businesses are, it's hardly surprising that they feel alienated. 
And so we're working with uh, people in that position, uh, firstly, to help them understand they're not alone, uh, and secondly, to help them understand the big picture and to big, uh, and that there are good, sound, solid, theological, Christian reasons uh, to advocate for a free market economy. Well, we will hope that uh, the bishops will take up your wisdom on that. Look at their website if you'd like to see their wisdom. It's thecme.org. That's thecme.org. Center for Enterprise, Markets, and Ethics, Reverend Richard Turnbull, thank you for joining us. Thank you. How does community revitalization work? What does it require? Tackling such complex, deeply rooted issues as intergenerational poverty, dangerous environments, high crime, and failing schools presents many challenges. One solution and the basis for the purpose-built communities model is a coordinated holistic approach based on quality and focused on sustainability. Join us at the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan on January 24 for a lecture series event on purpose-built communities. Register now at acton.org slash events. That's A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G slash events. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dan Huger, research associate and librarian here at Acton. Dan, thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Caroline. Surprisingly, we've actually never talked about Lord Acton on the Acton Institute's podcast. I wouldn't know who Lord Acton was if I hadn't become familiarized with the Acton Institute a couple years ago, first when um, I was in college, and then as an intern, I heard you speak on Lord Acton's life a few times. But if it wasn't for that, I would have absolutely no idea who Acton is, and I think it's pretty important that we emphasize who Acton was on the podcast. So we're going to start out with the most basic question, who was Lord Acton? Well, Lord Acton is uh, an English Catholic historian, is briefly a politician, and also a journalist um, who helps sort of introduce a lot of the uh, German methods of historiography into England and was also... Um, sort of a leading Catholic intellectual at a time when England was, for the first time since the Reformation, sort of opening up and allowing Catholic political participation uh, once more. I'm also curious, before we continue in our conversation, how did you first become interested in Lord Acton? Because he's a bit of a obscure historical figure and not many people know who he is, although many people would know his most famous quote, which is power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mean, there are so many people I know who do know that statement from him, whether it's from a certain Star Trek episode or any movie kind of dealing with themes of totalitarianism. So how, how did you first learn who Lord Acton was and why are you still so interested in who he is? Yeah, I first learned who Lord Acton was... Um when I was getting my, my history degree at Hillsdale and we were doing sort of like a history of, of historiography and Acton came up there very briefly. When I was hired by the Acton Institute originally, I went and I had a conversation with my father and I was telling him about, you know, this exciting job opportunity. And he uh, asked if we worked with Broadway Grand Rapids. And I was, I just paused for a minute and I go, no, 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 the Acton Institute, not the Acton <laughs> that Institute. Acting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and at that time he asked me, who, well, you know, who is, who is Lord Acton? And I said, well, you know, he's a 19th century English historian. And that was, that was basically it. 
Like I had very little grounding in sort of who Lord Acton was. And as I became, you know, working day to day in the Acton Institute and going through the archives, um, originally Acton was very much front and center. We used to have an annual uh, every year on Lord Acton's birthday, we would have a Lord Acton dinner and a lecture um, about Lord on Lord Acton from various different uh, Lord Acton scholars. And one of our first books was actually a uh, a short collection called that we called the History of Liberty, which included Acton speeches, uh, lectures, um, the history of freedom and antiquity, and the history of freedom in Christianity and an introduction by Jim Holland, who was a a Lord Acton scholar who did a lot of fabulous work throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s on Lord Acton, and who was uh, early involved uh, with the Acton Institute. Um, And I started, you know, tracing these lectures out. I read uh, Gertrude Fimmelharp has a fabulous biography that we've brought back into print um, called Lord Acton, A Study in Conscience and Politics. And then uh, several years ago, I realized that there wasn't a contemporary single-volume anthology of Lord Acton out. And we, uh, I then uh, put together a book called uh, Lord Acton Historical and Moral Essays that would kind of introduce the reader to sort of Lord Acton's thoughts on morality, history, and gives a sort of like outline of his, uncomplete, his incomplete history of liberty. And then while we were doing that and I was going through the sources, uh, Sam Gregg put together a nice companion volume uh, called Lord Acton, Historian and Moralist that goes through and a lot of those early Acton Institute Lord Acton lectures are in there as well as some more recent German historiography on Lord Acton that's recently (laughs) been translated. So as I was doing some research on Acton earlier today, I learned that he had a library of about 67,000 volumes. His notes and manuscripts in the Cambridge Library fill some 50,000 pages, and he also produced 200 definitions of liberty. He was also once called the most learned Englishman alive, but he never published a book. Why is that? One of... um Acton's great teachers, uh, Ignaz von Dollinger, said very prophetically that if Acton didn't finish a major book by the time he was 30, he would never publish a book at all. And what we have that survives are long essays that he wrote during his journalistic career for various publications, also lectures that he delivered throughout his life on historical questions. There's a ton of written material but nothing ever sort of formally organized into a book. And part of this is, you know, responsibilities throughout his life are sort of divided between a political career that his stepfather really wanted for him, um, that Acton, Acton wasn't very much interested in, but dutifully because he believed in sort of um, the principles of the then English Liberal Party, felt obligated to sort of give it a go anyways. And then when he became involved with journals of opinion and sort of controversies, that kept him from formalizing, you know, any grand academic volume. And then later in life, he becomes sort of a general advisor to William Gladstone, the great 19th century liberal prime minister of England, and becomes involved a lot there. And so it's only very late in life that he gets appointed to a university position at Cambridge. During that time, he conceives of uh, the Cambridge Modern History, which is going to be this multi-volume set 
that he is going to contribute some small parts to, but then he also li- was trying to line up leading scholars of the day who had specialties in various um, aspects of modern history and try to do a t- definitive history that was going to encompass a lot of his ideas um, that he knew he didn't have the time to get out at this point in his life by himself. You know, unfortunately, he passes away before the completion right. of that. So when you say definitive history, mm-hmm. how far did this go back? This went back. Lord Acton had planned to write the first essay, which he ended up passing away before he could, which was basically sort of an essay on the medieval period and its relation to the modern world. And then this would begin, the history proper itself would begin in sort of early modern Europe and would go forward from there. And that was, you know, a very grand project, was eventually completed as a multi-volume project, and Cambridge has, in fact, uh, done a successor series um, later in the 20th century, sort of trying to update it. Sort of the scope of the project, when Acton thought about history, he thought about it in terms of ideas and tracing these ideas throughout history. He thought ideas are sort of the motive force for people's actions. And when you do that, when your historical questions are grand like that, like the history of liberty, there's no end to it. When your subject is an idea through throughout all of history, that's very, very difficult to do. And this is where court sort of the library comes from as well, because the whole time He's going throughout Europe. He's going through all of these archives that are opening up in Paris, in Rome. He's digging through these papers. He's taking these copious notes on index cards, you know, thousands and thousands of index cards, some of which, you know, there's no attribution for where the quote came from. So it's kind of difficult to tell, you know, was this Acton's original idea? Was this something he copied out of a book but just didn't note it? And the library becomes so big and so expansive that eventually he has to sell it. He sells it to a friend who then donates it to Cambridge, which is how all of this winds up in Cambridge. And Acton kept the books throughout his life. Even The, the, the terms of the sale were that when he passed on, this library would then leave his possession and come into Cambridge. So that library and those notes and those hundreds of definitions of various ideas throughout history all come through this sort of lifelong research project that he was never able to wrap up in any sort of definitive fashion. But at the same time, he leaves he leaves us a lot of essays that give us a really good picture of where he was going with it. Not as fleshed out as he would like, but, you know, he's sort of a perfectionist by nature, I think. So what was Acton's early life like? What would have molded him into the kind of person that ended up having that sort of mind and drive for history and watching how liberty and ideas and totalitarianism all unfolded throughout history? What projected him along that career? Part of it is Acton is actually born in Naples and winds up actually having to be made a citizen by an act of parliament because... Both his father and his grandfather were also born in Naples. The reason for this sort of convoluted family history is that opportunities for Catholics in England before, you know, the middle of the 19th century were very, very restricted. Acton's family had been Catholic for generations. As a result, his great-grandfather had gone to Naples to serve in the Navy, Um, His grandfather was the prime minister of Naples. 
after it wasn't until after Lord Acton's father had passed away that his mother then moved back to England with him. So he has this, and he has relations also in France, in Germany, sort of all over. There is this extended Catholic family across the continent. As a result, Acton grows up speaking a lot of languages, which is an excellent tool for a historian to have. He also grows up as a Catholic in England at the time as a minority, and a minority in which there's, there's a lot of animus directed at English Catholics. Acton at the same time falls in love with history early on, and he starts reading a lot of the uh, English Whig historians of the period. And there is very much a preoccupation with England as the center of the world and the center of the development of freedom, democracy, of the economy. Acton is intrigued by that. Later, he sort of distances himself from some of the more naive aspects of that historiography. But he thinks, I think, about liberty and becomes preoccupied with liberty as both an interesting historical question, one that fits with his own political commitments, but also as a way to sort of link himself, link the earlier medieval tradition, and link the Catholic Church with this legacy in England, and to posit that in a, in a medieval England, in a Catholic England. And this is a way that I think he can conceive of himself as an authentic English person and as a way that English Catholics can take a hold of that English legacy of freedom and constitutional government that in many ways they felt alienated from prior to that. Now I'm going to veer off in a slightly different direction now because I want to talk about how his work and the way that he analyzed history along the lines of what you were talking about and that ideas have consequences and he recognized Mm -hmm. this especially um, how that is central to the Acton Institute and what we do. Mm-hmm. Because I think the Acton Institute, we're special in our mission in that we combine Judeo-Christian principles with economics and try to point out how a free market economy and human flourishing are really supported by these religious principles. So considering that, what did Acton specifically have to say on this subject? How did he see religion being central to a conversation on things related to history, uh, liberty, how these played out? There's a great uh, lecture of Lord Acton's, the, uh, the History of Freedom and Antiquity, that gets to a lot of these questions. He talks about how the concept of law as being something that is not, uh, that is above all men. Uh, in a similar way that God is above all men. And he sees this idea developing from the ancient Hebrews and the notions of the Ten Commandments of a law delivered by God that men are to live under and to live equally under. He posits a sort of separation of church and state and an understanding of the limits of state power to Christ in the New Testament, talking about rendering things unto Caesar that are Caesar's and unto God that are God's. He views this as very different from an earlier pagan tradition, which often sees religion and the state as combined, as the sort of, you know, the sort of god-emperors, the pharaoh, this sort of earlier tradition in the West. He even comments um, in a curious part, and he doesn't go into this a whole lot, about how perhaps the the first free society is that of uh, King Ashoka in India, the first Buddhist king of India. So he clearly sees religion as integral 
to the forming of a free society. And when Acton talks about a free society, he's talking about things like rule of law, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. He is also a proponent of free trade and a lot of those things. But Acton's primarily concerned with the sort of uh, political liberty and doesn't write extensively on, uh, on questions of economic liberty. So I, I know that you have a page of quotes there in front mm-hmm. of you. What are some of your favorite Acton quotes and why? So one of the most, most interesting things about Lord Acton is how he defines liberty and the role of conscience in that, which gets to a lot of these, you know, where does religion inform? Where does the nature of the human person inform what we do? In the History of Freedom and Antiquity, he, he writes, uh, by liberty I mean the assurance that every man shall be protected in doing what he believes is his duty against the influence of authority and majorities, customs, and opinion. So this is a pretty standard sort of definition of liberty, but Acton does sort of nuance this and contextualize this, like from uh, uh, his essay on the Roman question. There is a wide divergence and irreconcilable disagreement between the political notions of the modern world and that which is essentially the system of the Catholic Church. It manifests itself particularly in the contradictory views of liberty and of the functions of the civil power. The Catholic notion, defining liberty not as the power of doing what we like, but the right of being able to do what we ought, denies the general interests can supersede individual rights. It condemns, therefore, the theory of the ancient as well as the modern state. So this collapse in the ancient world between any sort of divisions of church and state, of any divisions between the authority of God and the authority of the king is something that is antithetical to Acton's view of freedom. At the same time, that freedom is not wholly unbounded. It is accountable to God, um, and it is accountable to our own conscience. And he writes, this is in a sort of manuscript fragment. This is one of those index cards that I was talking about earlier. He says, uh, our conscience exists and acts for ourselves. It exists in each of us. It is limited by the conscience of others. It is enough for oneself, not for another. It respects the conscience of others. Therefore, it tends to restrict authority and enlarge liberty. It is the law of self-government. So for Acton, you know, freedom is not a mere sort of license. It is the condition that's necessary for you to embrace your freely chosen duty those duties to God and conscience. Um, It's the necessary condition for living a moral life, living in the world, respecting uh, neighbors and honoring God. Yep. Well, that that brings to mind the idea of oughtness. Mm -hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if it was Acton or not who said this, but that freedom is having the liberty to do what we ought. Mm-hmm. Was that Acton who said it that? It is Acton. Okay. That is, the quote appears in secondary literature mm-hmm. all the time. in various ways, <laughs> all of the yeah. time. And I think it comes from that segment of the Roman question that I quoted earlier, which is which is not quite the same. It's not quite as pithy as, as uh, the other arrangements come. But that notion that defining liberty not as the power of doing what we like, but the right of being able to do what we ought. That clause in that sentence of the Roman question, um, I think, is where that comes from. Well, Dan, thank you so much for sitting down with me today and going over this. I hope to parse out a little bit more of Acton as we move on the podcast for this next coming year. And there is so much 
to touch on regarding Acton and it is impossible to do him justice in a segment that is under 30 minutes but thank you anyway for trying with me today and I look forward to speaking about Acton with you more yeah thank you Caroline and I am I'm always I count it a privilege to be able to talk about Lord Acton as always thank you for listening to learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do visit our website at acton.org if you want to reach our podcast team here at Acton, email us at rfa at acton.org or leave us a message at 888-705-4180 to give us feedback and to let us know what you think of the show. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to swing over to iTunes and leave a review and rating. This episode is produced by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Nathan Moore.